lived long enough to see things that looked impossible be realised, such as the fall of the Berlin Wall and the independence of East Timor. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Vladimir Putin thumbs his nose at the West. The bulls take the Crimean news in stride and the renminbi falls to an 11 month low. A big rally in Europe and on Wall Street has perked up Asian markets and we see broad gains across the board. In Japan, the Nikkei is up 217 points. That's a gain of 1.5 percent. Gone, apparently, the angst from last week about growth in China slowing and the Crimean and vote. Anyway, up to 17 for the Nikkei, 14,494. In Australia, the ASX 200 up about seven tenths of 1%. And the Kospi in Seoul also up seven tenths of 1%. The dollar is trading at 101.91 yen. The dollar a little stronger against the yen. And the euro is at 1.3925 US dollars. But before you think, well, giddy up, listen to this. Well, I think that we had a colossal credit bubble in China and that this credit bubble is now being uh, gradually deflated and will bring about uh, problems in the real estate market and among some uh, major players in the commodity markets as well. The irrepressible Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom and Doom report, and he says it doesn't end well. There's lots of funny things that are happening I, in China. I wonder... And when the whole thing unwinds, it will be a disaster. So we'll hear more from him in just a few minutes. Well, I've got a big session on China this morning with James McGregor from APCO Worldwide and Edward Jew, the CEO of Sheik Group. We'll also be talking to Andrew Sullivan from Maybank Kim Eng Securities on the jumpy markets and Jeff Boda on the rising popularity of craft beer. We hope you've just about shaken off your hangover from Beertopia over the weekend. And Jeff is the chief, uh, the chief beer evangelist and CEO of Hopleaf Hong Kong. So that will be coming up towards the tail end of this program. First on Wall Street, stocks soared overnight. Data showed a gain in industrial production in the U.S. And that lifted optimism about the economy, that perhaps after the winter, the economy was starting to re-gear. And investors appeared to shrug off the developments, as we mentioned, in Ukraine. The S&P 500 up 1%. At 1858, the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped 181 points to 16,247. Factory production in the U.S. rose in February, the most in six months. It was a 0.8% gain at manufacturers, and that followed a revised 0.9% slump in the prior month. We welcome Andrew Sullivan, Director of Sales Trading at Maybank Kim Eng Securities, on the line. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Brad. We did see the yuan uh, sink to an 11-month low, and apparently options traders out there have turned uh, more bearish on the currency, and the uh, the spot rate was down about half a percent. That's a little bit unusual for the yuan, but a lot of people take heart in it, saying it is um, it is engineered by the authorities as part of the reform, and it shows that it's no longer a one-way bet. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, I think they've worried for some time about hot money coming into China 
due to this uh, you know, sort of almost an assurance that the yuan was going to continue rising. By widening the, the band, the trading band that it's allowed to trade in, you know, it increases the risks for, for speculative traders, and uh, that's probably very good for the economy. Yes, uh, good, good for the economy, but not for the markets. Well, I think longer term, I mean, you looked at the, the, the markets yesterday in China, they actually took the news very positively because it's obviously going to help the, uh, the exporters, uh, which are some of the large SOE companies within the stock exchange there. Okay, so um, maybe a little less stimulus, but maybe a little more if the exporters do well. And, and maybe with the better economic news out of the States today, we, uh, you know, if you look down the line today in Asia, markets are, are, are higher. Yes, I mean, I think I mean, you have to sort of take the American markets carefully because the volumes being traded there are actually very low. Um, I think the other thing to be careful of there as well is a lot of this data is um, historic. And, of course, this week we've got the FOMC, and we're, we're, everybody's going to be looking very closely at to whether Janet Yellen uh, widens the sort of net of economic data that she's going to look at with regard to tapering and, and other stimulus. So the Fed meeting may be bullish because Janet Yellen will be very careful, and uh, they don't want to spoil things at the moment. But would you say that this little blip up then might be a good rally to sell? I mean, we've got a lot of results coming out, and people really are looking carefully at their portfolios and the outlook. So it's back to fundamentals for a week or two, certainly, and looking at the numbers, looking at the statements coming out of companies to decide, you know, which ones are going to be worth investing in. And so it's a stock picker's um, market, I guess. Um, It's not just a stock market, but a market of stocks, of companies. And so you look to find individual companies that are doing what? Just beating on expectations in the earnings report? Well, I think obviously beating expectations is always a very solid um, basis to to work from. But you've also got to look at the the outlook for these companies. Certainly, um, like yesterday, we saw China construction. um, They came out the beat. That stock's been down 18% in the last couple of weeks. So you you can see a bounce coming through for stocks like that. And the fact that people will be encouraged that fundamentally their business is going in the right direction. The areas that had been hot for a while, the China Internet and mobile games, uh, they seem to be a little weak at the moment. Uh, What's up there? Well, yes, I mean, I think Tencent and Alibaba have been competing for online financial services. And obviously, over the weekend, uh, the PBOC has been... um, probably tightening up on that uh, part of their uh, scheme of controlling you know, unregulated financial services. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Well, it, it, and that continues because obviously they've, they've cut down on the um, payment ban cards that the, both Tencent and Alibaba were putting forward. And I think that's probably more to do with um, wanting to protect union pay, which is the widely accepted one in China. Um, but it, it's obviously a big driver for Tencent and Alibaba and their associated companies. So it, it, it's a little bit in limbo there at the moment, I suspect. Besides the Fed, what will you be watching most closely this week? I think it'll be company results, to be honest with you. you know, we, we had about 30 companies yesterday. We've got another 20 today. It's a big, big week for results. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us here on the program. Andrew Sullivan, Director of Sales Trading at Maybank Kim Eng Securities, brings the time to about 10 minutes after 8 o'clock. Well, a Chinese real estate developer with 3.5 billion yuan of debt has collapsed. Its largest shareholder has been detained. Bloomberg says that Zhejiang Xingrun Real Estate doesn't have enough cash to repay creditors that include more than 15 banks. And it says that China Construction Bank alone holds more than a billion yuan of this company's debt. 
Is this, along with the Shanghai Chaori solar default, the kind of Bear Stearns moment in China? Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program, we've got a couple of, of great guests, James McGregor and Edward Ju, coming up. But first, uh, before we get to them, let's lay out the Faber thesis. If I look at export figures from China, and they are very closely correlated to overall economic growth, then there is a huge discrepancy between what China reports and what China's trading partners are reporting. So if you look at the figures of China, then exports are still growing. If you look at the trade figures, say China exports to Taiwan. So China re- records exports of so, so, so and so much, but Taiwan reports imports from China at a much lower level. So which figures are more reliable? I think the figures of the trading partners of China are more reliable. And he says he thinks that investors are sort of missing the boat on China. Investors are not sufficiently aware that the Chinese economy is far more important for other emerging economies than the United States. Because China is a large importer of resources, in other words, iron ore, copper, zinc, nickel, oil, and so forth. And at the same time, they are a huge exporter to commodity producers of their own manufactured goods, as well as Korean exports to commodity producers are much larger than Korean exports to the U.S. or to the EU. So. If the Chinese economy slows down, commodity prices, in other words, industrial commodity prices are likely to remain under pressure. They already come down a lot. They remain under pressure. Then the resource producers have less money. In other words, the Brazilian economy goes into recession. The Middle East uh, does not grow as much as before. Central Asia, Africa, and so forth, all have uh, contracts. And then they buy less from China, and you have a vicious cycle on the downside. So that is Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom report. And again, uh, he says there's a huge credit bubble in China, and it's not going to end well. Well, we welcome now to the program James McGregor, chairman for APCO Worldwide of China, and an author and media commentator as well. James, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So we had uh, an interesting few days here, the yen tumbling to an 11-month low. We had another uh, default there, a mainland developer that is collapsing. And China is announcing more details about this trillion renminbi spending plan to redevelop shantytowns. So it's a good time to look at the reforms, uh, the wrap-up of the NPC and the CPPCC. And we thought you'd be a great guest to have on, so thank you for joining us. So you say... You say that the most important developments on reform are in the financial sector. Why? Well, um, if you look at uh, what Zhou Xiaochuan said um, about being able to lift the deposit rate or free the deposit rate, which I don't think they'll make it completely free, but they'll do it step by step, that's very important because then all the people in the mainland who have been losing money by putting money in banks uh, at an interest rate below inflation uh, will not have to go into shadow banking sector anymore to get their get their profits. So I think that will, over time, step by step, wind down the shadow banking sector where everybody's gone off on all these 
you know, quasi junk bonds and other other loan mechanisms and private wealth wealth mechanisms to make money. That's a very profound step, and then a lot of things kind of tail off of that. So, I mean, in general, if you look at the at the NPC and compare it to the third plenum. Um, I was encouraged to see that um, a lot of the goals of the third plenum is starting to lay out some policies to actually carry them out. And, and as you know, as Mark, I love Mark's uh, gloom and doom stuff, but uh, you know, these guys know their problems, and um, I think they're laying steps to try to fix it. Now, yeah, could it's, it all it, go wrong? Yeah, maybe. It, it's interesting. Uh, I, I do note a change in your mood because after the third plenum, uh, you were a little skeptical. You were focusing a little bit more on the security apparatus and that sort of thing. I don't want to talk too much about terrorism, national security, and territorial integrity today because we wanted to talk more about uh, the money issues and everything. But it is interesting. I mean, they're allowing the UN to fluctuate more. They've talked about liberalizing interest rates. And, you know, they're allowing some defaults. Um, the defaults may be good for the system, uh, but they could potentially royal markets. Are you concerned about that? Well, markets are markets. And, you know, they, they, they'll go up and down because they always overreact to, to China. Well, I, but, I, I um, mean, maybe I misspoke a little bit. Not just markets, but sentiment. In other words, if you're holding a lot of these shadow banking products, um, wealth management products, trusts, whatever, and you start seeing defaults, you might be likely to, you know, want to get your money back. And so, you know, if there's contagion on that, that can disrupt the system. Yeah, yes, it could. But I, I would, I would like to see. I'd like to see some more defaults. The problem is when these things have gone wrong. This this uh, coal, this coal deal that about a month ago was about was supposed to uh, default, and then over the weekend they cleaned it up. It wouldn't say who did it. Um, you know, there's some bad stuff out there, and if they let a few of these things default, they're gonna they're gonna stop the entry uh, of people into that market. Yeah. A few defaults would be good for them because that that's the only way you're gonna turn it around. And they're smart enough to allow the non-systemic um, issues to default if they see that it could be systemic. They probably wouldn't do it. Uh, uh, what about um, the Shanghai Free Trade Zone? A lot of people have kind of written it off, but you say don't do so. Well, I was very skeptical of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, especially remember when it opened and Li Keqiang and none of the big bankers went and it looked like it was in, you know, there's still some political turmoil in Beijing over it. But it seems now that it's really part of what, you know, I think what Wang Qishan and Zhou Xiaochuan and Xi Jinping are planning on, uh, you know, making the bureaucracy move by doing some more open-minded things in these zones and then spreading them to the rest of the country. So I think it's, I think it's going to be solid. It might take some time to get, you know, to get rid of a lot of the these restrictions it still has, but it's an experimental zone, and there's 18 more that are lined up. You know, once once one city gets something, the rest of the country wants to do it. And it, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to put this genie back in the bottle because reforms are very, very badly needed in China, and the bureaucracy has been resisting. So she pulling all the party back to the power back to himself. He's going to start cracking away at this. Yeah. Yeah. The anti-corruption drive uh, is starting to bear some fruit. Uh, but on the uh, Shanghai Free Trade Zone, I haven't followed that closely. Um, has, has the take up uh, or in other words, companies going there, has that been slower than hoped for? Well, yeah, because the companies didn't know what benefits they would get. I mean, people would, you know, put a put an office there or put a registration there on the hope that something's going to happen. And now they're, they're starting to see that, you know, there's going to be some more opportunities there. But companies, they want they want to they want to see something real. They don't want to just see a bunch of theory. And the same thing with the Shanghai Zone in Shenzhen. 
um, I think this stuff will start rolling out. Yeah, um, just need some time. Okay, um, the SOE reform, that's another interesting plank. Uh, Make them compete and uh, pay some dividends to the state. So that might get the private private sector excited. However, um, he also said make them stronger. So will that be stronger competition then to the private sector? Yeah, I mean, on SOE reform, I think what they want to do is try to make them more efficient, and I, I just don't know how possible that is, but they want that to be the core of the system. you got to remember, and the, the plenum language was Lyon. You know, let's Lyon the market and Lyon foreign investment. What they mean by that is use it. The core is still going to be state enterprise. They just want it to become more efficient, and I don't know. They'll be able to make it somewhat more efficient, but at the end of the day, unless they give real competition against state enterprise, they're not they won't get efficient. And if you're telling state enterprise that they got to take 30% of their profits by 2020 and use it to fund the social security system, that means they're going to have to leave big monopolies in place to be cash cows for that system. Yeah. Okay. A final question. Um, They have sort of been wrenching uh, a little bit of the easy money out of the system. And then we see yesterday this massive $1 trillion uh, plan to uh, this sort of spending plan to clean up the shanty towns. Uh, that's um, that's stimulus, isn't it? Well, it is. It is and it isn't. I think what they want to do is China's getting close to what you call the red line on land. They have a certain amount of land that, that they believe they need for farming, for food security. And the cities have expanded so much, they're getting close to that line. So I think what they want to do is they want to take the land they already have inside of cities that is tumbled down and inefficient and clean it up and then be able to put lots more people in that space. Yeah. Okay. So this, is, this is urban redevelopment, basically. All right, James, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. That's Jim McGregor, chairman of APCO Worldwide for China. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet because we got Jeff Boda coming up in a few minutes, the chief beer evangelist at Hopleaf Hong Kong. Want to go back and take a look at Beertopia and all that. But we want to talk a little bit more about China. We're joined by Edward Ju, the CEO of Sheet Group. Good morning, Mr. Ju. Hi. Yeah, just um, that last point that I made to Jim about uh, this spending, this um, this spending one trillion dollars on uh, on cleaning up the shanty towns. Um, that's a pretty strong move, and I, I actually saw it quoted by a number of traders on Wall Street overnight. Um, what do you make of that? I think it, it makes a lot of sense because uh, the the value creation is is in place, and at the same time, it deals with the political problems that is the disparity between the rich and the poor within a big city, because the land is very much always located within the city. So there are two values in there. One is, uh, I call it existing value, which is the land arbitrage opportunities. On the other side is the land value creation. So that makes a lot of sense that uh, is comes in as a driver for the GDP growth in the next 10 years while at the same time is really dealing with the disparity between the rich and the poor. So this helps a lot with the land value creation? Uh, Not only land value creation, but also there is a land value existing already there. Between the land nearby, which is already in the city, that's of much higher value. So it creates a, a bit of a wealth effect. People can spend more. Correct. But, you know, there are more coming out of this uh, driver. So uh, the that it creates a lot of uh, market expansion, as well as uh, pulls the people coming from these uh, 
the Shetty Tan into uh, into the big city as well as the flow of the money and talent getting into the Shetty Tan. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities in there. Tell me a little bit about your company and, w- and what you actually do in China. We are a land developer. We are we are a an agriculture company as well. We do agriculture. We farm. Because we are, while we are farming, that we saw the opportunities in the rural areas. Uh, the rural areas opportunities very much to do with the land, the agricultural land, as well as the what we China called the the land is uh, farmhouse lands. The farmhouse land is the land where the farmhouse is located on. So the opportunity is really coming from this farmhouse land. Uh, so we've been working with the government to deal with this farmhouse land. Um, the opportunity comes from this integrated rural urbanization we've been doing. So is, uh, does, does it mean that urbanization is essentially then a property scheme? Urbanization is uh, it, urbanization includes property uh, development, includes the property opportunities, yes, and it's the main driver in it. Uh, otherwise, where's the money coming from? You cannot expend, you cannot depend on the central government or government to give you money. There the thing is, no is we, money. We, we sort of, according to a lot of people, have overbuilt already in China. Now you've got all this, you know, extra 160 billion U.S. or 1 trillion. Um, does it perhaps mean that we might get even more overbuilt? The overbuilt is uh, inevitable. Uh, the overbuilt will come because uh, the city in the, in the future, the living area in the future in China will be in competition anyway. So if you look at the competition, uh, any, anywhere in the world there is such a competition. There may be overbuilt, uh, but the, the money is already being invested in, in the past. That's, I, you, you can think about it as that is a sunk money. But on the other side, if the new city to be, or new town within the city to be created is more meaningful, that attracts more people to be live in there, so it's a market play. It's really a market play. And uh, there will be a lot of overbelt in the future. And a lot of developers are kind of single-digit PEs. Do uh, um, you think that that's still a good play for investors now? Well, it, it really depends on the way that how do they uh, develop. You know, the developers are really getting into a new model of creative way of uh, property development. Uh, those those developers are just using the traditional way of uh, developing the properties, as I think is going to be facing a lot of issue. Okay. Uh, they really need to be creative. All right, we'll have to take a close look then at the plans, and, um, and maybe that's a, a discussion for another day. Thank you, Mr. Ju, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Edward Ju, CEO of She Group. And we say good morning now to Jeff Boda, who is the CEO of Hopleaf Hong Kong. Uh, Jeff, very good morning to you. Good morning, sir. Yeah, thanks very much for coming in. And good to talk about um, craft beer because we we often in the uh, last segment do an industry segment. And uh, we have talked a bit about craft beer because it is growing pretty well. And we had this festival, Beertopia, out over the weekend. Uh, how was your experience there? It was really good. I think there were a few challenges the first day. The weather was not that good on Thursday and Friday, but it picked up really well. 
well on Saturday, bigger attendance than ever. And I think we saw real, we got really good customer interaction. People were more excited this year. And I think the knowledge has gone a lot deeper in the city this year, which shows the market is developing. But with 400 beers on offer, does that dilute, for instance, the number that, that you were there showing that you distribute? Yeah, I, I, but I think that's a good thing. Whenever you see better products coming into a market, it means the market is robust and it's starting to mature and competition is better. I mean, we've seen that in every industry. Yeah, that's great to hear from you because a lot of people fear competition, but you say it'll grow the pie and everybody's sliver will get bigger. Exactly. I mean, that's how we look at it. And I think the other advantage is, too, is breweries overseas realize that Hong Kong, along with Thailand, is one of the growth markets for Asia. And you're now seeing really quality, high-end breweries who never look at this part of the world before are really looking at exporting here. Okay, the last time we talked to you was about a year ago. In fact, mm-hmm. I think I met you at uh, Beertopia last year mm-hmm. and hauled you on this program. How did 2013 go for you? It went really well. Uh, sales were up Sales are continuing to grow up. Um, the big question for us is, can we just get enough beer over here to supply the market consistently? Do you have um, enough cash flow that you can advertise much? Uh, that's something that we're actually looking at this year. The, the whole thing for the first few years as we went into getting the beer into the city, I think the next step is looking at getting a little bit deeper penetration into the market, and that's one avenue that we're looking at. To what's, your best, what's your best penetration now? Is it uh, just online ordering? It's, it's actually really at the wholesale level, and what we're seeing, which is a really good indicator of growth for the market, is draft. Um, you move a lot of volume that way. You get really good varieties. Customers like it a lot more. And that's really been the main growth that we've seen in the past year. And once you see that getting deep into a market, you know that it's becoming a good, mature market. How many places in Hong Kong can we find beers that you distribute? Uh, right now, approximately, I would say 80 to 90. Um, wow. Spread all over. I mean, the main areas are Hong Kong Island, Soho, Wan Chai, Causeway Bay, that area. But we're actually getting... Uh, uh, Saikung, for example, is a pretty good growth market for us. Now, you guys formed the Craft Beer Association not too long ago. I think you were one of the uh, one of the people involved mm-hmm. in that, uh, Jeff. And uh, what sort of benefits has that reaped for you? I think what this really does is it brings everybody together who's looked who's looking at just promoting a best standards practices. What we're looking is what can we do as an industry to really get the best product out there for the consumer, uh, get standards that we all willingly comply with that will make sure that everybody, when they hoist a pint, that they're going to get the best beer that they can. So if I could ask you, uh, I know you're a private company, so Mm -hmm. you may not want to answer, but in terms of percentage growth in 2013 Mm -hmm. and then looking at 2014, uh, where would you be? I would say probably last year we probably did about 60% growth. Wow. And I would guess this year we're targeting 50% growth, but after looking at the early part of the year, that might be a little conservative on our part. Are you hiring? Uh, yes, we've just added a few new people, so that's good. It might allow a little bit more free time on my end, which I think everyone <laughs> always appreciates. Are you still Are you still working outside of um, your your role with this company? Ex- yes, yes, I still am basically pulling down two full time jobs. Hopefully, oh uh, at some point soon, uh, I'll be able to take the full leap into beer full time because who doesn't want to follow their dream? Okay, well, anybody who calls himself the chief beer evangelist uh, is a hero in my book. So thank you, Jeff, for joining us here on on Money for Nothing. Thank you. He has the guts to put that right on his business card, too, and he's also the CEO. This is Money for Nothing. The time is 8.30. 
Markets are pretty bouncy this morning. We've got um, all of the key markets up about 1% to 2%. The Nikkei's up 100 and, uh, or rather 216 points or 1.5%. Weather today is going to be mainly cloudy. Yeah, you don't want to get in front of hers. So mainly cloudy skies with some fog, and the maximum temperature will be all the way up at 24 degrees. And the news is next. Here's Samantha Butler. The United States says it's withdrawing one of its naval ships from the hunt for a missing Malaysia Airlines plane, and it's deploying one of its surveillance planes to Western Australia. The BBC's Jennifer Pack is in Kuala Lumpur. Malaysia has sent its search teams already out to what they call the Southern Corridor, so from Indonesia all the way further down south, deep into the remote parts of the Indian Ocean. We know the Australians are also uh, out there taking charge, but there are 26 nations that are helping out. And before, what it means is that all along for the past week, the areas they were searching, well, that proved to be have been in vain. And now they're looking at completely new areas. A lot of the countries, though, have had to stand back and wait for instruction from the Malaysian officials so that they can narrow down this area. China has delivered a scathing assessment of a United Nations report on human rights in North Korea. The report, published last month, was authored by a former Australian judge, Michael Kirby. Radio Australia's Barbara Miller reports. A representative of the Chinese mission in Geneva told the UN Human